Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You won't find any of those in today's podcast. All we can offer are hipsters, the Cold War, spandex jackets, and a new frontier. Today, we jump into our time machine twice to visit 1982 and the late 50s for the first solo album from the pianist and main creative force behind Steely Dan. Coming off the band's breakup, this record takes you on a walk between the raindrops back to the late 50s for Swanson TV dinners and some late-night New York jazz radio stations. The album features some of the best studio musicians at the time, but ultimately led to the artist suffering a nervous breakdown. Are you intrigued? We hope you don't give us the goodbye look just yet. We've got plenty of Java and Chesterfield Kings, so stick around as we dive into Donald Fagan's The Nightfly, up next on 1001 Album Complaints. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where four lifetime friends, musicians, and music critics pick apart the list of 1001 albums you have to hear before you die. My name is Adam, and in the studio with me this week, we are joined by our regular crew of... Phil. I'm Rob. And I'm Tom. Yes, they will be providing all of our wonderful opinions that we all need to respect and <laughs> potentially take with a grain of salt. We'll see what happens. So this week, fun album. We're jumping in to The Nightfly by Donald Fagan. Uh, we've got eight songs across 38 minutes, a little bit different than our LL Cool J album, uh, which lasted over an hour. So we're right at, we're coming in just under 40 minutes here. This particular album was recorded in 1981 and 82. Donald Fagan spent eight months writing and then eight months recording with just a remarkable amount of musicians uh, on this album. I think there's 31 listed uh, musicians on this Nightfly album. Pretty cool. It's not quite to the gaucho level, which had 42, I was checking, but still plenty, plenty of uh, slamming musicians on this album. It was recorded in between New York and LA as well. So I've been listening to this album my whole life. This was the, I haven't actually put on headphones and cranked them with this album ever. It's always been tape deck in the car with my dad, maybe CD in the car, lots of car listening, right? So you're not always getting the best uh, speaker quality there. First time I really put on the headphones, cranked it. And the first thing that came to mind was, is this a yacht rock concept album? Thoughts. <laughs> And overall, what'd you think? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting you say that. So I wasn't as familiar with this record as like many of the other Steely Dan records from my childhood. Like specifically, Can't Buy a Thrill in Asia. Like I remember a lot from growing up um, or, or rather when I found them later, they were already very familiar to me. I mean, yeah, this has all the sensational musicianship that I'm used to and, and the songwriting from Steely Dan. But yeah, it's it's also weird. Uh, like, I feel like it's almost like the tale of two albums. Like, there's what's happening when Fagan is singing, which is kind of amazing. And then there's a lot of just really questionable choices 
production choices being made when he's not singing. Like, Interesting. All just right. like weird, just cheesy synthesizers and really weird, cheesy, not electric pianos and just just odd, odd choices to me. Odd. So I didn't grow up with Steely Dan really at all, but throughout college and high school and college and beyond, I think all of us here are Steely Dan fans. And so I, I was relatively familiar with the Nightfly. I have it on vinyl, played it at various dinner parties over the years. This was the first time I gave it a really hard headphone listen or several. So I did notice a bunch of new things. And no, one, given that this is his first studio, his first solo effort uh, after Steely Dan, my first thought immediately on launching the record was, is he renouncing guitar? Like, is this a statement about his former partner? Second thought was, is this dance music? Is he attempting to make dance music? <laughs> are we in the disco era? We sort of are, right? So yeah. ultimately, I, I like the record. I think it's got a good vibe. It sounds like a Steely Dan record. It sounds pretty similar. One thing that really jumped out to me just at glancing research that I wanted to bring up to you all is that Donna Fagan is like 34 when he's making this. Uh, to me, he just always seemed in my mind like a forever old man. So I, for some reason, that yes. just seemed revelatory to right. me. I, I don't know why. I was like, oh, I'm older than him now. Yes, he definitely seems like forever old. Like, I definitely imagine he's like 57 when he's making this. I mean, I imagine he was 57 when he was making Can't Buy a Thrill, honestly. I listened to this album. I've listened to it before, but again, I've never done the sort of deep dive. Let me try to examine what's going on with this album. A couple of things stuck out to me right away number one there are no hard edges on this album at all everything is smooth there is no burr in the sound it has no edge which made me start thinking like was becker like the cool one in steely dan was he the one that because steely dan for as much as it's super smooth it has a little bit of an edge to it mm -hmm. i feel like the edge was completely missing from this album it, it goes back to that metaphor that James always brought up about Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, where he said it sounds like basically like a laminar flow of water moving over completely smooth glass at an angle. It's just a flow no. that is just what? uninterrupted the entire time. No resistance. Um, no <laughs> resistance at all. So basically, like this is like the anti-punk rock album to me it's completely different all about the musicianship the other thing that actually struck me is that almost all of the lyrics are really positive and hopeful mm -hmm. and fagan is a curmudgeon and he oh, seems like way. a curmudgeon but all of his lyrics are all about like the great life he's going to build with these women and everything's going to be fine and this beautiful future that's going to come about and i i found myself going back and listening to other steely dan songs and oddly enough how all their lyrics are somewhat hopeful. They don't really have a ton of negativity in their lyrics. And I, for some reason, just had associated them with being a little bit more cynical because Fagan just comes across as a guy who would be cynical. I mean, you can't be given a face like that by the Lord and not be cynical about it. And it, I, was, I found myself re-examining the entirety of the Steely Dan catalog from that angle of like, oh, this is actually like a pretty positive band overall. I can totally see why they're like you know smooth popular uh, inoffensive rock i take some issue with that not not ex i know what you mean and i noticed the positive tone on this record and i read it as cynical or 
sarcastic. Yeah, I, I think it's it leans more towards sarcasm based on uh, some of the stuff that I heard in that eminent hipster book that he released. Tom, to your point, it could have also been called eminent curmudgeon because he's just Phil kind of earlier in the week had sent a text like, I would love to be in this band, right? Listening to the album. And I would not. A, because (laughs) (laughs) Donald Fagan, the perfectionist, right? So it would have been hell to work at those conditions. And then it's just, everything is, oh, the malls are terrible and they're ruining. Oh, the internet's going to ruin everything. Just everything from him is very curmudgeon-y, very old man-ish. But it doesn't come across, honestly, if I didn't have that context of like reading about him, like, the lyrics sound very positive. It's going to be a bright future. We're going to get from New York to Paris in 90 minutes and everyone's yeah, going to have right. spandex jackets. And I, I can see that you're like, oh, I was trying to come across as like sarcastic and cynical, but that doesn't really come across in the delivery. It doesn't come across in the tone of the, of the music that's behind it. You know, you have the very positive sounding, nice harmony behind that smooth music. And he's talking about what a wonderful world it will be. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, no, I didn't mean that. It's like, well, you didn't really do a great job of getting across okay. it. You didn't mean that in the actual presentation. No, in the same way we talked about his age, though, Tom, I, yeah, I agree with you because I realized after I had that thought that it was based on a preconceived notion of Donald Fagan, the lyricist, as being overly cynical or sarcastic. And it might have something just to do with his delivery style, or it might just be a, something that's formed in my mind over time for whatever reason. He, he always seems like he's having a little bit of a go at at society. This is the guy, right? Adam maybe knows more from reading the book, but this is the guy that in the sixties sort of renounced where rock and roll was going and was like, yes, yeah, lost its edge. Like at a time when everyone else was thinking, Oh, this is revolutionary. All he, oh, he was like, no, no, no. Sonny Rollins and, and old school jazz. That's the only place you can get the real deal. His response to the lack of edge in rock and roll was to make Steely Dan. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's like, I know what's edgy. Add nine is edgy. Four is edgy. (laughs) The 13th. I do. Yeah, let's go back to the edge thing, because I noticed that I think that really came across in the instrumentation. One of the things that gave Steely Dan a lot of edge was the sound of the guitar playing. In fact, that's one of the things as a guitar player. I remember that's one of the things that really stuck out to me early in my Steely Dan listening career in college was how kind of angular and crunk some of those notes were. And it really... I don't want to overstate the case, but I think it really gave a totally different vision of how to even play the guitar compared to all the other classic rock that I had heard uh, in the past. I think that's very fair, especially, I mean, I know, you know, we all dug deep on Royal Scam, which is just slathered in in, an amazing guitar. Yeah, it it definitely presents, I like the way you put it, a different way to play rock guitar. Right. Especially, uh, you know, just in the context of bigger chords and solos that are like blues driven, but not blues driven. Yeah, that's like blues driven solos over not blues chords. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But even the tone of the guitar, Rob, that you're talking about on this album, there is zero crunch. I think the most gain you're going to hear Rick Derringer does a solo on one of these where he he digs a little bit, but even then it's a clean guitar, right? So it's like, that's about yeah. as hot, quote unquote, hard or heavy as it gets. I definitely yeah. found myself being like, did they not have any distortion on this album at all? Do they just completely forget about distortion when they so made this? It's, it's interesting because this album was one of the first truly digital 
albums. Oh. And so 3M had just invented and released a 24-track all-digital mixer uh, along with mm. it was being stored on digital tape, right? So you got something like, I had a note in here that 45 minutes of digital recording, you needed two miles of tape because the spinning head, the reader head was moving at 54 inches per second. So that thing's screaming to write all that digital information on there. So I think that knowing that these guys are perfectionists, right? Gary Katz is a perfectionist. Nickel, uh, Roger Nichols, the engineer, a perfectionist because they've all worked on Steely Dan together. And then Donald Fagan, you know, the ultimate perfectionist. To have the promise of pure digital recording, so you're not going to have background hiss, it's lossless, all that wonderful stuff. He may have really embraced that and thought, let's get the cleanest sound, the smoothest sound. Get distortion, no, this is about clean. This is about the note. This is me just you know, putting myself into what may have driven the lack of edge around that, that you guys are also hearing. Let's also say that this caused me to go back and look at the Steely Dan chronology as well. And I think it's fair to say that they were on a trend in this direction, meaning we were talking about when we talk about crunk guitar sound, I'm thinking of Countdown to XC, My Old School, or mm-hmm. the Royal Scam, Kid, maybe not even Kid Charlemagne, but some of the tracks on Royal Scam. What's the or, second track? It opens up with that like sharp nine chord. And you, like, you feel oh, it. Yeah, that's, that's, um, Take Me Alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, I right. lost my old man back in old Yeah. yeah. Don't and, take me alive. And, and the la- those are early Steely Dan records, or even the real one in the years guitar tone, right? Mm-hmm. And then the later Steely Dan records, they're definitely getting, maybe he's going Howard Hughes and he's got tissue boxes on his feet. He's like, I got to get all the hiss. I got to get all the gain out of this. Now we're into Babylon sisters and Hey 19. I'm just saying there is, there is a progression (laughs) towards the smoothness. Do you think that that progression was the ascendancy in the creative pairing of Fagan over Becker and that maybe they were a little bit more equally paired and Becker coming in on the sort of guitar driven front and Fagan coming in on the piano driven front. He just won out in the end and he was taking more and more creative dominance. Cause this honestly, almost to me seems like the, it seems like the apex of what that Steely Dan sound was moving towards. Like it's almost fully realized on this album. Well, when we look at the creative contributions of members of a group, we must only, well, we only can look at the evidence of the solo records. And if you can direct your attention very briefly to Walter Becker's, what is it, a 1993 release, 11 tracks of whack? Okay, now quickly turn it back off again. (laughs) Is it that good? It's terrible. Please don't listen to it. (laughs) In in line with that, with the perfection that, that we were talking about and, and, and the digital era that we're going into, I wonder, again, this is all me just, you know, going through my head about guitar music, rock music. It, it is imperfect, right? That's, that's why you like it, right? It's dirty. It might not be perfectly on, on point, right? So if, if that's what Walter Becker brought to it, he's gone. We now have Donald Fagan, the imminent perfectionist now. And yeah, just, Everything has to be perfect. The tempos, the metronome, all that. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I was actually, it's exactly where I was going with it, it, with your thought is, is it makes me wonder like if this is moved into the digital realm now, like is this quantized, right? Like, yeah, is so, it so the story, so the, the mini grid, because I think it matters. The story of the Wendell uh, drum machine started back on Gaucho 
uh, specifically showbiz kids, when Donald Fagan was was noted to have said something that, you know, they had 40 drummers in and they may have been a millisecond off with the metronome. Mm-hmm. And he said, can't you just make me an effing machine that'll play the same beat perfectly? So Roger Nichols literally took eight, eight bars of a drum track and managed to replicate it and put it on tape and wrap it around the studio out into the hallway to get, you know, three and a half mm-hmm. minutes of the same exact thing. So that's where Fagan wanted to go. Nichols then goes off and basically builds a drum machine, probably one of the first drum machines called Wendell that he had to program in uh, assembly language, which coming from the dork realm is extremely complicated. Uh, you're, you're literally talking to the, the bits and bytes of the computer and everything. So they, they started putting that on, I think Hey 19 was the first mm-hmm. one where it was literally perfectly quantized. I mean, to the, the microsecond they went away, Steely Dan broke up. Uh, Roger Nichols continued to work on Wendell two, which is the drum machine that is uh, prominently featured throughout this album. And in fact, mm. if you look at some of the credits, because they were somewhat limited in what they could do in terms of that drum machine, you have sometimes two drummers and that drum machine on a single track. So you've got the back, the background, and then maybe, I don't know, Steve Jordan comes in and does the drum fill coming out of the second chorus. So again, and also one of the first albums where they were piecing tracks together, right? This was not everybody in a room isolated count off three, four, everybody hits. This was, instrument by instrument putting it together and you can kind of hear that too the way it's layered the way it's kind of you know tom had mentioned you know like a a beautiful masterpiece of a painting and you go back and you look at the layers and everything when you start to listen to it with that in mind you can kind of hear how it was structured and put together and layered and yeah you know adam when you first were talking about making a drum machine and they called it the wendell I was like, why would you pick such a nerdy name? And then you told me and the backstory. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it makes 100% sense. That's the nerdiest backstory I've ever heard. <laughs> and secretly, the thing I was most excited about talking about. <laughs> that also makes sense. I, I right, also, right. you know, some of this and the smoothness. And let's just talk about the context of where we're at. This is 1982. Is that right, Adam? Yeah. Yeah, 81 into 82. 81, 82. It was up for some awards in 83. But I guess what struck me when I was looking at what else was nominated for a Grammy or kind of what was on the radio, how do I put it? These songs, they're familiar to me, but they they do seem like an era, a bygone era, or, or like a brief blip on the musical history. And then it occurred to me, well, a year later, a year and a half later, 1984 is Purple Rain, Synchronicity, Thriller, like it felt like a revolution was coming. I kind of can't believe these were the hit records of this era. Am I yeah, crazy? Like it's, or, like it's a between time or something. It's a between time. That's what it, it was actually like. really. I mean, this this is going to connect a dot. You know, this is to a complete a complete outlier. But like this this era of people actually is referred to in marketing as Xennials, right? You're not quite Gen X. You're not quite Millennial. You're born between seventy eight and eighty two. Mm. You're you're not really a Reagan baby. You're not really a Carter baby. It's an actual thing. It fell in that gray zone, right? Because Rob, Rob, to your point, right? That Toto album was also up, and and I mean that's. Again, grew up listening to that. That's yeah. a great album, but it, it has is. a sound that's. You're right. It's like wait, a which Toto album are you talking about? Toto Four with okay. Rosanna and and uh, well, that's the big one, right? Africa is on it. 
There you go. Right. And so it, they still they had a little bit of that Steely Dan kind of progressive jazz rock kind of thing going on. A little bit more guitar with Steve Lukather in there. He actually got some distortion on that album. Sure. And a drummer in common, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Was Picaro on that? Yeah, he's on. Yeah. He plays somewhere on the Nightfly. I'm not sure which tracks. And a, a little tidbit I found just wiki wormhole for Jeff Picaro is he played drums on Mother on the Wall. Apparently, Nick Mason was thrown off by some of the time signature changes and just gave up and said, yeah, let the session guy do it. You think that's why they fired him? <laughs> I thought they fired the other guy. Richard Wright was the one that got Oh, fired. did they fire? I thought it wasn't Richard Wright. I thought yeah, okay. Richard Wright got fired and then rehired for the wall tour. And then he ended up being the only one that made money. But that was yeah, because it was like a <laughs> you know, hundred million dollars over budget. Right, exactly. But he got salary. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about it when you were talking rob earlier you mentioned um like disco like is this disco and the albums you're talking about that came out in 84 that might have been the death knell of disco when that sort of new sound came about yeah. so i wonder if this was sort of like people trying to incorporate disco into other forms of music and it sort of had reached the end of the road for disco. There was nowhere else to go. And then the new sound came up. Everybody was sort of tired of it. And you're right. These albums that we're talking about that came out then they're good albums, but I don't think that they are nearly as enduring as the albums that came out in the next several years after it. Toto four is what won the Grammy for best album. And I would, that's the one that jumped out to me is, not that I'm such a huge Toto fan, but definitely I like those songs. They have a lot to recommend them. Maybe I'm still reeling from the fact that a Donald Fagan solo album could be this popular. Right. I just I didn't grow up in that universe. That still seems confusing to me. Yeah, totally. Right. So, so doesn't it, make any sense. Looking at some of the notes <laughs> about the reception when it was released, so Billboard called it a stunning debut from uh, from Donald Fagan was nominated for seven awards at the 25th uh, Annual Grammy Awards in 1983. As Rob uh, mentioned, nominated for Album of the Year, also Best Engineer Recording. In 1983, it just made it into the top 100 for the year-end charts, came in at 99. The first track, IGY, hit the top 40, which again, can you imagine turning on pop radio and hearing this <laughs> I mean, maybe this back then. six-minute song? Right. They <laughs> called it Adult Contemporary, but yeah <laughs> igy was up for best song of the year next to eye of the tiger <laughs> That's so here, here's, an, here's an interesting question and i did not research this at all did he make any music videos yes the new frontier new frontier yeah it got some play on mtv wow yeah he, and it's, it, I, he his face doesn't appear no no no, no 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 he's no, not no, i'm sure it's a beautiful thankfully. woman it's got to be a young beautiful woman. it's a the video concept is like a 50s teenage high school sweetheart couple going on a date to his parents fallout shelter yeah. right good yes that's right <laughs> very consistent with the song so and there you go go back to that concept of uh of of, of the 1950s and that that's a, that's a great kind of uh, a point there so i mentioned right we, we kind of do a, a time machine two times here right we go back to the 80s find out how when this album was produced the context in which it was produced but the concept of the album itself harkens back to the late 50s. So you picture a young Donald Fagan, about 10 years old, his parents pick him up from Passaic, New Jersey, which was kind of a small town, and they move him out to the Burbs, right? The classic 1950s Stepford Wives suburbs, and he's in hell. So he mentions in his book, 
kind of talking about the 50s. He says, I tried to grow up honest. It didn't quite happen. I guess I'm someone for whom youth seems more real than the present or the half century in between. So this is him reaching back into the 50s for, I mean, we all do that, right? The whole uh, nostalgia aspect of it. So he's reaching back into this personal hell for him that was moving into the suburbs in in the 1950s. And you see that a lot in the lyrical references, but also the style and compositions that were going on at the time. So Maxine and Ruby Baby, right? Ruby is a, is a cover. Maxine is an original by Fagan. But he hearkened back to a band from the late 40s and 50s called The Four Freshmen, which basically sounded like an acapella group set to orchestral music, right? So when you hear the two kind of side by side, you can see that influence. So he's not only reaching back in time with the lyrics, but also the style of the time. One of the things I heard in an interview with him was not only did he move to the suburbs as we now know them, but he moved, he was like a pioneer of the suburbs. So it was even more boring. There were no, there were barely any strip malls or commercial districts at all. It was just housing developments that hadn't even been fully built yet when they got out there. Yeah. Not even kids on bicycles willing to sell you weed somewhere. Like, (laughs) come on. (laughs) It's like, it's like ET, right. But like, 25 years before ET, right? Right. He said when he moved in, it was just all dirt. The lawns hadn't been placed. And he said, you know, you would look out your, your back door, at your doppelganger uh, neighbor. And just, he was just again in hell. And it's interesting to me. You say so much about the fifties because one of my notes that I kept writing down is like that there's something that almost reminds me of like Sinatra or the Rat Pack. Um, and, and I think, For me, where the record really shines is where Fagin is literally singing. He's singing pretty detailed sort of stepwise, these these tight, you know, chromatic clustery melodies or these difficult chords. As ugly as the guy is, he does have a very beautiful voice. Like, it's very beautiful, not in a typical way, but like, it's it's beautiful. I hated Um, it as a kid. Yeah, yeah memorable. I, I like it's it his personality perfectly. Well, and another, <laughs> I think another thing he doesn't, I listening to this, I, I thought that another thing he doesn't maybe get enough credit for is as a delivery man, so to speak. Totally. Like he chooses his spots. He's precise and measured about where he, his vocals come in in the same way that I think a lot of the instrumentation is very precise and measured. Uh, very the, one thing that, uh, the one thing that always still cracks me up to this day, we've talked about Fagan having a good voice. We've also talked about him being horribly ugly. And on Can't Buy a Thrill, when they were doing the original sort of videos and uh, performances of that, when they brought in that other singer to (laughs) sing the song and sort of be the front man because they didn't think Fagan could carry being the front man. And the guy that they brought in was also very ugly, (laughs) less less ugly than Fagan. Uh, But Fagan is like a good singer. And the guy is not a better singer than Fagan. But he's like, you didn't get Robert Daltrey. No, they got like Robert Daltrey if he got like his teeth kicked in when he was a kid and never got fixed or something like that. But my favorite part of it is when on Do It Again, they cut to. Fagan singing the back Jack do it again line and he looks so pissed off he is so <laughs> upset about no, the I, fact that he has somebody else singing I think I know the clip you're talking about it's from that Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special and I yes. want dude I want to say it's reeling in the years which of course Fagan sings on the record the, the guy <laughs> that's so rough the guy the guy in question sings dirty work right which is a great song too 
but Fagan sings the other songs. And I just remember, I think what you're talking about, Tom, is yeah, cutting to Fagan up on a riser, like way in the back on his piano, singing just in the yeah. chorus. And he just looks so sour. No, so it, sour. he does it actually for both songs. Cause I, we've watched that Sugarman, that Bert Sugarman's midnight special a couple of times. And yeah, it's, the 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 do it again part just cracks me up because they cut it they cut right to him just for the back jack and the look on his face is just back jack do it again and then they cut back to the other guy and the other guy you're like you're not an attractive man how did you get this front man position let's, hold on let's let's just dissect this for one second where Fagot's head is at at this point because presumably he must have already recorded the studio track at this point and if they're playing it on a te- televised program it must already be a hit. So to have the manager or whoever go, no, you're like, still, no, stay in the back. No, we're, we're swapping you out after all that. That is, that is crazy. Just, just for the audience. Can we, what is the name of that? What is the name of that uh, show Bert, again? It's Burt Sugarman's, is it Midnight Special or Midnight Express? It was a long running TV show, Burt Sugarman. Midnight, Spe- Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special. Burt Sugarman's yeah, Midnight Rock, Special. Uh, my dad has talked about that show before. Rock groups just- that show up on there, right? Yes. Can we just yeah. play a brief clip of where Denny Diaz and Skunk Baxter absolutely melt down reeling in the years? Can we just drop that right here? Let's do it. I think my favorite part of them completely shredding is that the cameraman is consistently on the one that's not shredding. Like for some reason they completely fuck it up and they're always on the guy that is not shredding. It's because you're like, wow, there's a lot of sound coming out. It's not really moved his hand. And they're like, oh, that's not okay. It's the other guy. You should be panning the other way. Yeah. They still had those 700 pound cameras on wheels that it took like three minutes to turn one inch. So maybe that's that like, I was at studio 54 last night. I'm really hung over, man. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bother me. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for these side guys, but this just got me excited. I only saw that clip one time. That's really, fantastic. no, it's really, it's a really fantastic clip. Nice so time. we take, we take the misery of Fagan and we trace it back to his childhood, right? He's in the suburbs. He's miserable. And he, he, he said of the 50s that despite the popular depictions of teens dancing on countertops at the diner, the decade was characterized by nail-biting paranoia and commies lurking behind every corner and hedge. Oh so this is painting his childhood, right? The bomb drills in the schools and everything. I knew I liked this guy. <laughs> so his only escape uh, becomes sci-fi, the piano, and jazz music. So obviously we see where jazz went, but there was a little a clip in his book where he talks about how he got into sci-fi. And I mean, he's a classic nerd too, right? So this all kind of makes sense that we see what his childhood was like. He had mentioned on the Ed Sullivan show in the late fifties, they usually have trapeze artists and guys spinning plates. And Ed Sullivan said, well, here's this, uh, I think it was from Germany. It was some little animation or some little cartoon that someone had done about a nuclear bomb going off. And apparently nobody on the show had watched it. So they play this on a Sunday night at eight o'clock. There's 16 million kids watching. And like, it's a story of like a B2 bomber coming in and blowing up 
a forest and like the animals are melting and the people's faces are melting. And he said it traumatized him, his entire school. And he knew right then that he wanted to read sci-fi. I was like, yes, <laughs> it, it, it was awesome. And you can actually find the clip on YouTube as well. If he could find time between his dates with the ladies, of course. Oh, of course. Yes. Yes. His escape then is jazz, right? So he finds himself now using his radio to find these late night, jazz stations out in new york city so he said he would turn it on at i don't know 11 o'clock at night and these guys would do the entire night shift so he would sometimes stay up till five o'clock in the morning listening to these new york jazz stations play all the great stuff all the new stuff so he he developed this love of jazz to fill the hole in his life which was moving to the burbs now, at about the age of 12, he had one of his cousins take him into New York City to uh, Birdland, where he saw Count Basie. And again, a pivotal moment in his life where he realized that this is what he wanted to do. And Phil, you, you were mentioning the, the sus four and the nine chords. He has a, a line in his book where he says that he was watching Count Basie. He was in awe and they hit the, the whole band hit a 13th chord and he could feel the air rush across his face. <laughs> so I was like, ah, that is awesome. That's that's a weird that's a weird anecdote. <laughs> well, I assume and he's it in was the crowd hit. like that's a thirteenth. I can it, I can feel it. It was hit with such ferocity. <laughs> yes, that it nearly knocked him over. We've got the context now for the nostalgia that that led him to write this album, uh, "The Nightfly," the main track of which is about a a late night jazz radio host. Uh, so I, I think we'll get to that one. But first up, we had mentioned IGY, which is the first track on the album. And Rob, you were mentioning this one actually, this one hit the top 40, right? That this one got some player. Was this up for song of the year? I've already I don't know if it hit the top there. 40, but it got nominated for a Grammy. It ended up losing the other, it ended up losing to the Willie Nelson version of Always on My Mind, which is an absolutely terrific song in my opinion. So if you haven't heard it lately, go out and listen to it. Totally killer. And it was yeah. up against eye of the tiger, Rosanna by Toto and Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney, which I get that it's classic, but I've never really it's, liked that song. It's that not song. a great tune, right? It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> not good. <laughs> The best thing they came out of Ebony and Ivory was the SNL sketch that they did <laughs> with yeah. like Frank Sinatra Jr. and uh, he's like, "I'm Italian and you are a yeah. Jew." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we're, if we're really, I mean, but we're talking. We're, we're we're talking about which song is the worst? Igy or I the Tiger? Right? Uh, yeah, because when you're in that, because the rest of the songs are kind of yeah, yeah. yeah. Unless you want to push Ebony and Ivory down. <laughs> no, I, I like I like IGY just fine. It's I'm just surprised again that in this universe that you know, this alternate universe of 1982 where this was popular music, where this got played on the radio, that just it seems so alien to my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe it was one of those. I remember recently when like Beck one song of the year grammy over beyonce and like everybody lost their mind and was like how did this beck song that i barely yeah. heard win the grammy it, it might have been one of those the grammys are notoriously out of touch with what's going on in modern music yes. we should we should probably say that that's happened many <laughs> times i think yes. there was one where like kid a 
lost out to some oh and actually i think the steely dan two against nature one when like kid a and midnight vultures and i don't know maybe <laughs> the first eminem record or something there was a bunch of like now classic records and steely dance two against nature won the grammy and people were like what are you talking about and jethro tull Jethro Tull beat out Metallica for like best metal album. Oh yeah, yeah, or something. Like, that's like, per- the first year they had best metal album. Right, it was like ninety two. I, I just yeah. remember everybody losing. Sure, they their beat moments. out like Ride the Lightning or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Ride the Lightning doesn't have any flute, so <laughs> right. they can't win metal album of the year, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So let's give IGY a little listen here. So I, I was also reading in my uh, Wikipedia rabbit hole that a lot of sound engineers, front of house sound engineers in the 90s would use that tune to calibrate their system because hmm. of the mix. It's one of those songs where if you put it on with good headphones and you close your eyes, you can literally pick out every instrument and focus on it, but then come back and hear the whole. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like nothing, get, nothing gets muddled. Everything is... Well, I feel like my experience is like I can really hear the completely pointless digital piano <laughs> when you had a perfectly good real piano right there, <laughs> or like the cheesy digital synthesizer that's like hip and new and fun, like when you had a perfectly awesome like Moog arpeggiator right there. And it's right. like it just feels it was, like that was that it's, was a, it's robbing of a, of a, all its balls, which we've sort of talked about. But is right. your assertion here that it, I wrote down that this could probably stand up against the twenty best Steely Dan tunes, like pretty effectively? Do you think it's such a di- a digression from what Steely Dan has done in the past, Phil? No, no. I think what you said at the top, or who I think it was, you, you were sort of driving, but we were all talking about it. That this was a step by step Steely Dan move from pretzel logic. Right, which was sort of like a, a rock band, right, with with extended chords and some smart songwriting to to this, which is completely buffed to a high gloss sheen, no no edges. So, I, I it, it, in my personal opinion, like Asia is sort of like the peak for me of the smoothness. There are a bunch of songs on Gaucho that I love, but I could never fully sink my teeth into Gaucho. I, I agree. I mean, that's that's my overall appraisal too. They're they're they kept trying to recreate what they had on Asia, which was the probably the pinnacle of that style. I, I think it's yep. pretty easy to agree with, right? One of the things yeah. I really like in this tune, particularly though, that we just listened to is the chorus back to verse transition. I thought that was a really nice sort of slinky melodic classic Dan transition where it kind mm-hmm. of melts back into the minor key. I just wanted to compliment Donald on that. <laughs> There's a couple think, of points in this album that do that. The transitions are really nice. Mm-hmm. My notes on this song are that the first 60 seconds of the song pack the most Steely Dan into a minute of basically any song <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> they, they get, they, they hit like all of the Steely Dan tropes in the first 60 seconds of the song. And then when they come in and nobody hits on the one, when they go like drop into that, 
but nobody hits the one except for the drums just do a little like and then everybody comes in on a slight delay after the one that is it's so tasteful but it again that's just peak steely dan where it's like you thought we were gonna hit on the one didn't you suckers like we're gonna hit on the one end why would you think that after 10 years of steely dan albums (laughs) of course we're gonna just a series of, of monster musicians on this track as well like you said, Jeff Baccaro on drums. I love that James Gadsden is on additional drums. And then uh, probably that drum machine, Wendell, is keeping the lightning metronome perfect tempo there. Yeah. I, I My note was that I, I thought it sounded like... So you know when you watch old school Star Trek and they've got all the blinking lights and you're like, oh, that's what they thought the future was going to look like. In my head, this is what people in the 50s would have thought the future would have sounded like. That synthesizer thing in the beginning, I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is maybe their version of the Jetsons. Or like, this is what musicals sound like in 100 years. Yeah, it's funny because my note, my other note on this is that this is what people who think they hate Steely Dan think Steely Dan sounds like. (laughs) I agree. Totally. Totally. It's it's not a good entry track to try to convince a hater. it's really catchy really if you guys want to just like dig into some steely dan fun i recently got a little online spat with somebody that steely dan pitchfork uh, posted their review of royal scam and i just said like this is their best record ever fight me and that actually resulted in like a lot of feedback i'm not really one to engage on the internet like that but it was fun feedback from the internet (laughs) (laughs) on the Did they fight you and say, no, it's Asia? Or like, did they fight you and say, Steelian sucks entirely? There's no... Yeah, good question. There were were a lot of people who agreed with me. There were a lot of people, yes, that tried to engage in a nuanced argument about Asia or Gaucho or Countdown to Ecstasy. These are... are, Yeah, Gaucho, yeah. These are arguments I can entertain, right? These aren't the, the ramblings of an insane person. This is personal taste. And then there were one or two people who basically just tried to diss Steely Dan and you know, everything that was made before 2008, I guess, uh, to, to which I, you know, I tried to like, respond as tasteful listen, as possible. This Wiz Khalifa track is so much better than anything Steely Dan <laughs> has put out. And I know these are apples and oranges, but yeah. uh, we've talked about this before where the thing that I respect the most about music is effort. Mm-hmm. And you cannot listen to a Steely Dan track and not be like, oh my God, the like, mind killing obsession that must have gone into making yeah. this track. So the counterpoint go for it. DJ Khaled saying we the best is also takes a lot of effort. <laughs> you know, he was like, you know what? I'm gonna drop the apostrophe re <laughs> genius. <laughs> yeah. He was struggling nights in the bathtub just with his pad working on that one he finally just crossed it out <laughs> and he's like whoa <laughs> whoa right it's like on the way they reverse the k and corn it's an exciting <laughs> moment <laughs> that was that was a big that was a big move no no rob originally it was a backward c <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Mm. tom to your, to your point about the uh the effort so anthony jackson who played bass on this tune also played on Gaucho, and he noted just about the the obsessiveness and the perfectionist that was um, Walter Becker and, and Donald Fagan. He said, endless hours were spent analyzing and refining the smallest performance details without noticeably improving the music. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the definition of effort there. <laughs> but he also said that 
it was a good exercise for him and that because of working on the gaucho album is that he had uh, titanium put in his spine because <laughs> i think to do you know a hundred takes for like one note or something ridiculous like that you know that that reminds me of a uh experience rob and i had working on an album where we were basically like putting out a mix and somebody in the album was just like hey like this note's totally flat you got to fix that and then we didn't do anything and we sent the same thing back to him we're like how how about now he's like that was great (laughs) (laughs) and i i get to imagine that if he had just been like listen just don't record anything and give him like the the take from like seven takes ago they'd be like all right that's the one sounds great you nailed it this time It's like the sound guy who's working the monitors on the side of the stage and the singer's pointing up and he's pretending to turn it. Yeah. The guy's like, that's perfect. Thank you. Looks good. So I have, I have two comments there. One, I'll assume that you sent me that track. No, no, no. And then two, and then two Quincy Jones in his autobiography basically says that everything you know about music is fake <laughs> and, that, and that everybody, everybody basically like when everybody goes to lunch, the real musicians come in and play your song. Right? When you're not oh, there. that's funny. Wow. Yeah. It's hilarious. So are we going to find out that like there's an uncredited Jimmy Page guitar take on this album? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. For Jimmy Page plays drum machine all over this record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I, by the way the, how hilarious that's like an snl sketch right there where it's just like jimmy page in the studio with like donald fagan <laughs> and he's just like trying to do it trying to do a take and he's like i'm jimmy page and everything's fantastic he's like you're off by like a 64th <laughs> beat on that one and so i'm gonna need you to do that again take 174 let's go <laughs> And they both die of natural causes in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> and the skit ends. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That was, yeah. Classic. All right. So next up, we're <laughs> going to be we're going to be checking out the track Maxine. So as I'd mentioned, this was done in the style of a group from the 50s called the Four Freshmen, which we've uh, we've seen in plenty of Steely Dan songs, very tightly stacked harmonies. And we hear it right out of the gate on this tune. They jump right in. There's no, you know, the the piano builds in, but when the vocals come in, it's a four or five part harmony right out of the gate. So uh, let's give that a quick listen. Some say that we're reckless. They say we're much too young. Tell us to stop before we All right. What what'd you think? Ace. This harmony that they do, I feel is again, it's quintessential Fagan Steely Dan harmony. Mm-hmm. I feel like that uh, whatever that stacked voices uh are, he just he hammers that. And every time I hear that, I cannot help but think that that is just Fagan unfettered in the studio taking all the control and be like no 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 uh, four was good but five it's that peg better. <laughs> it's that tightly stacked peg harmony you mm-hmm. know what i mean yeah. where it's like I, yeah. I i wouldn't even be able to recreate like i don't know what he's doing there so, but it's so the steely dan I, I dug i dug into this a tiny bit because we talked about this right so i, I don't know that this is the peg harmony for certain like i don't know for sure but something that shows up in this song that i do think is sort of 
you hear this in Steely Dan songs, and, and this shows up in Maxine, is a sus four flat five chord, right? So like, what would that mean? That would mean you're playing literally two notes on the keyboard directly next to each other. That was right? the thing and, that they had Michael McDonald trying to do. Exactly. He was singing that note and then a half step above. Half and step, he was, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you see this all over the song, in fact. Like, you see major nine chords. You see 13 sharp 11 chords. You see seven flat five chords. So what you're going to wind up with is a lot of half steps and whole steps, sometimes an octave apart. So, like, you know what I mean? Like, instead of... 12 tones up, you'll be 13 tones up, but maybe you can't hit it that high. So just sing it right on top of that bad boy. <laughs> it seems counterintuitive, like that wouldn't sound good. Would just be sour, but, dissonant. Yeah, right? you'd think it would be sour, but apparently not. It's got to be supported in the right way underneath, right? That's the trick to this kind mm -hmm. of harmony. I mean, technically, everything harmonizes with everything in, in some world, uh, right? Right, right. Well, there Your is overtones dissonance. and yeah. <laughs> Well, like, like something, right? Like the Beatles tune, I think that first, it resolves to a major seven chord. And in theory, like a major seven chord has two notes, a B, like in this case, a B and a C right on top of each other. You don't, that doesn't feel weird, right? <laughs> right. This feels weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's just mostly, can we say this is mostly Fagan on Fagan on Fagan? Harmonizing I, or? I think so. Uh, I'm, Sounds I'm like looking it. here. Yeah, I, I don't see any other uh, vocals listed on the track. Yeah, we don't get a lot of the like the really good female backup singers on this. Is there? I don't think there's any of them on this album. But they usually have like that group of like three or four really good female backup singers that are just killing it. Right. Yeah, they might be in IGY. I can't. I didn't really take close note. I guess. But so Tom, you'll you'll appreciate this as a bass player. So so Marcus Miller's on this track. He's 22. Fagin calls him up and says, I want you to come in and play. And he's terrified because he's heard horror stories where, you know, musicians come into the studio and Fagin makes him do 60 takes. Right. So he has him do Maxine. He gets done the second take and Fagin's like, that's good. Thanks. <laughs> and, and he wound up landing on the track. He had recorded a couple other tunes. I think he's, he, he had recorded four or five tracks but in classic Steely Dan Fagan style, he went through and said, nope, nope, you know, and, and, and landed on other bass players. But yeah, man, Marcus Miller. I mean, that's like you go out after that and you like buy a lottery ticket and you like shoot your shot on that girl you've had a crush on for a long time. You're just like, everything's coming up, Marcus, today. You got to make this happen. <laughs> Second take. Also, it's very remnant. So the saxophone solos. Can we talk about saxophone solos uh. that talk about the 80s, right? I think that they kind of phased their way out of popular music, maybe in the early 90s. But I love this sax solo, man. It's perfect for this tune. The only sax solo for me is the one that the shirtless dude plays in uh, The Lost Boys on the Santa Cruz boardwalk <laughs> right at the beginning, lit by a campfire. That's the only one that does it for me. It's pretty well, hot. Even though this is definitely 80s sax. I feel like the sax one itself is in a way a throwback to the 50s when the sax was the main oh, soloing instrument right. of those bands, right? Good you call. Know. Yeah, before they figured out how to make guitar solo sound good with distortion and stuff. So, exactly. great, great right. point. Great point. Because something we have not touched on at all on this yet is the use of guitar, right? Which is obviously the transition between saxophone guitar 
and synthesizers. You will hear multiple questionable synthesizer solos on this record that sound sort of like saxophone solos. And if you go back and look at pictures of Steely Dan and Donald Fagan playing in this era, you will find that Fagan was stepping out front with the guitar. <laughs> I like how you bring up the word the the word obvious and the word guitar in the same sentence. The guitar has never been the obvious yeah, choice. None of that ever. was obvious. <laughs> all right, none all right. of that was well, obvious. Well, look, I understand that nobody's going to see me taking my glasses off and rubbing my ugly face as we you know talk about this. But <laughs> I understand why guitar isn't obvious to you, but. <laughs> You know, oh, when you've yes seen me, enough, yes. <laughs> when you've seen enough Donald Fagan playing guitar over the years, you know when it's guitar. So, so, so I was still so blown away by Edgar Winter playing the guitar on uh, on Frankenstein. He crushes it, yes. But I was like, how is that not guitar? Apparently, I was. Yep, yeah, I had to watch uh, Burt Sugarman's Midnight Crushes Special. <laughs> it's so actually, it's, is that a proper guitar? Is that some kind of modded synth? I'd be like, like who the fuck? Who's this? Guitar is nothing about a guitar is proper. <laughs> proper guitar. Googling this. The synth used on this album was actually given to Donald Fagan. It was called the Synergy. They only made a couple hundred of them. It was by a company called DKI, which is Digital Keyboards Industries or something. Uh, they went out of business, and it was quickly turned into the D, uh, the DX7 fill, which I think that you might actually sense. have. Right? That makes one hundred percent sense to me because it the, the, it, yeah, it was the next I iteration IGY, of the Synergy. Right. When I listen to IGY, I think. Why did you use the DX7 keyboard? The real piano's right over there. Right. <laughs> like, why did you choose this? <laughs> I can't pick up the piano and walk around with right. it, of course. That's why. <laughs> why am I gonna... <laughs> By the way, how many times on this podcast now have we talked about very famous and wealthy musicians just being given free stuff <laughs> that they get to use. Come on, man. Epic, epic free stuff. Epic free stuff. <laughs> they can afford the $800. Right. <laughs> but here's something free. Yeah. All right. Next up, uh, we're, we're going to check out a tune, a uh, fourth track on the album called New Frontier. This tune is chock full of references right this is this is going back to the 50s this is the song that got some got some play uh one of the singles and also had the video made for it right it's a story about a, a kid who's trying to to hook up with a girl so he invites her back to his dad's fallout shelter for a party chock full of references so why don't we uh listen to a, a couple seconds of it just a dugout that my dad built In case the rest decide to push the button down We've got provisions and lots of beer The key word is survival on the new frontier All right, so that was a, that was a bit of new frontier anything strike you right out of the gate can i just as a little bit of a counterpoint to all the talk of extended chords we've been having and ridiculous layering of production i think steely dan is also pretty good at just this relatively simple concept of counter melodies i thought mm -hmm. in this song they use that little piano line paired kind of with the guitar line that comes uh, after the lyrics kind of plays a counter to that melody consistently and when I started listening for that a little more in all the other songs, I think it's something they're good at. In other words, the songs are chock full of melodies, not just vocally, 
But otherwise, and I think that I like that generally. My my two notes on the song were number one, and I really liked it. The only thing that could be considered a burr in any of the music on this album, he does that like piano smash at like around like two minutes and 40 seconds. He's kind of just like, a and he just like smashes all the notes on the piano. I love it. And that must have been, I got to imagine that he probably has like 47 takes of the piano or something like that. Donald so, <laughs> would love to hear that you had a timestamp. <laughs> For the piano smash. On when he yeah. railed his arm down. <laughs> he he would be like, listen. this is the type of listener I made this album for. To be fair, it's two minutes and 58 seconds. In there this. you go. Just going to point that out. <laughs> and then the other, the other note that I have is like, the last two minutes of this six-minute song are all outro. There's a yes. two-minute outro oh. on a six-minute song. Keeps breaking down until you just have the cowbell and the harmonica, yeah. right? Yeah. It's unnecessarily long. It's cool, but it is way too long i have a note of a lyric here which is something about make up my mind to learn design and study overseas and since this is an autobiographical album i was just wondering if fagan fashions himself a designer because perhaps this is controversial but i've always i love the steely catalog but i've always found that their cover art is absolutely horrendous just just trash and on a positive note i think the cover of the nightfly is the best cover in the set yeah, that cover of a uh, royal scam, which is like the pillars, and that's a, it's a really not a good cover. Mm. That, I'm look, I'm looking at them right now, I, Rob. I, I like your comment about this one being really strong. Uh, I, I actually, I actually look. It's funny you say that. I looked at this photo and asked myself numerous questions, like why is the clock at four oh nine? Like, is that a thing? It seems like a choice he would have made. Yeah, that's interesting. Play until the sun comes through the to the light comes yeah. through the sunlight. Yeah, yeah. Sus, that's a sus four ad nine. So yeah, yeah <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. You know, I, you know, I'm looking at he figured looking, it out. I'm looking at the Steely Dan art now. Asia has good art. Galcho, I'll just say it's bad. No, Royal that looks Dan. like a Picasso painting or something. It looks fine. I think Galcho is one of their better ones. Yeah, I don't like gotcha. it's it's just not. Like, I get that it's subjective, but it is but, just not but my it, style. Honestly, if I'm if I'm giving a serious a serious feedback, the only ones that I personally actually think are nice album art are Countdown to Ecstasy and Asia. The rest are throwaway. Pretzel Logic is a picture of a hobo. <laughs> <laughs> He's a not a whole lot of effort. <laughs> to be fair, Royal Scam is also a picture of a hobo. It's like a guy sleeping on a bench in front of a uh, you know those weird like. I think Can't Buy a Thrill is the worst. Probably it's just like a pastiche of uh, it's like a high school art collage kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's yeah. But, okay, but back to the night flight. Props to the photographer for all the crap we've been talking on Donald Fagan as uh, not the most handsome man in the world. I think this he looks photograph's yeah, good. Does a pretty good job of pitching him as almost, you know, dare I say, a leading man. Cool looking mm-hmm. guy, yeah. Cool cat. Here's here's a thought about Fagan. You know, we've all like made fun of how rough he can look <laughs> in some of this video in the seventies. Is it possible he's just using a lot of cocaine? Well, uh, clearly <laughs> yes. That is yes. not. That is one hundred percent true. Have we talked about the keytar selection, <laughs> but I also would like to point out that on the Nightfly picture. The thing that makes it work is that basically half of his face is in shadow. <laughs> you can only see half his They got face. his good side. Mm-hmm. They got his good side. So there was a line in here I had to look up. He says, are you mad about Brubeck? And I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Obviously, he's talking about Dave Brubeck. But the backstory to this line is that in 1954, 
Times Magazine went and profiled Dave Brubeck and uh, Duke Ellington to talk about how, like, what is jazz? Because most people didn't know. And so the magazine comes out and Duke Ellington is not on the front because it's the 1950s and he's Mm -hmm. black. And instead, Dave Brubeck is. And everybody went crazy because Dave Brubeck at the time in the jazz community was the commercialized watered down version of jazz. So everybody was pissed off at poor Dave Brubeck and he felt terrible as well. He, he said in interviews, he's like, Duke Ellington is much better. I'm angry that they put me on the cover. So that's where your, are you mad about Brubeck line comes from? Hmm. As a total aside, I, ju- I just put into the, uh, the chat here, a uh, picture that apparently is a fan made piece of art. That is the cover of the Nightfly, but it's like an anime chick. <laughs> it's Donald Fagan, which the fact that there was a somehow a crossover between mm, like yeah, anime yes. chick fans <laughs> and Nightfly and fans. Nightfly. <laughs> Yo, people are weird. <laughs> people are very weird. The internet is a strange place. You know, you know, my first question would be, why did they change the time on the clock? Uh, that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> what, what does it point. mean? <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, so let's move on to uh, our, our our next. Wait, 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 wait! I didn't yeah, get to yeah, rip please. this song. All right, God, please bring it on. Look, I, I know I've been really. We tough need some anger. I know I've been really tough on this record, and I'm just giving it a tough time compared to other Steely Dan records. It's a high bar. This song is garbage. It's covered. It's it's poor man's boogie on reggae woman, which I went back and listened to the record Ooh. cut of. I'm not sure that song's good uh, <laughs> after listening to it and, 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 and listening to this in context. I start thinking like I start thinking about the punk rock scene, and the reggae coming out of Jamaica and not hitting the punk rock thing in UK. And it, like everybody like new frontier, people are searching for a new thing. And apparently it's this hybridized reggae disco sound that's not particularly good. Tom, if you want to check out some questionable, obvious guitar solos, I'd invite you to the first minute or final three minutes of this song. Also, some period <laughs> in the middle. It's just, it's just a basically lot of talking about two thirds of the song is questionable. <laughs> it's just the first half and the second half are terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Phil, uh, by the way, I'm, you're. Uh, your your memory of Boogie on Reggae Woman is one hundred percent poisoned by those parties that we used to go to on Wilbur Street, where they would play that song again and again, and all mm. the like. Our, it was like our freshman year. We went to that one party yeah, that yeah, was I'm like sure. the house that was like yes, yes. the Healthy Doses guys had yes. a house. They played that song basically nonstop, but all the girls would go crazy for it every time yeah. they played it. And I was like, "This song is awesome!" And then I agree. Later on in life, I listened to it and I was like, "Oh yeah, I." I may have inflated the goodness of the song. It's not bad, but you know. Yeah, I'm actually gonna just out of curiosity look at what record that's on. But this is the example that you picked of, you know, the kind of like watered down crappy reggae version. Cause for me, that was the goodbye look, which is the total like, you know, Caribbean Oof, ripoff. That's a yeah. rough one. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If we're being uncharitable, this whole record sounds like Steely Dan filler material. I think that's the that's that's the truth of it, in my opinion. There's some there's some highlights, and it's definitely worth listening to because I like Steely Dan a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> However, so, but but that brings up again that point is that like if you look at Steely Dan as a duo, clearly Fagan is the most talented version of Steely Dan. If it, if, you, if I had to choose between just a Becker version or just a Fagan version of Steely Dan, I'm choosing the Fagan version. But maybe the 
maybe Becker was what made it good. They, they really needed that. Counterforce? That counterforce, because Fagan is indulgent like he is he can just continue to add his musical ability and his Uh musical knowledge he can continue to add and add and add and add and add and he really needed becker to be like hold on a second let's just the brakes let's not spend two years putting this album together i never thought about this duo comparison before but in a strange way something you just said tom made me think about simon and garfunkel i don't think anybody would argue that paul simon is the better songwriter and artist. But Garfunkel did add a counterpoint that wasn't really recreatable past, right? Oh, I'm not saying I, Simon's solo work isn't fantastic. I think Simon's solo work is better than Simon and Garfunkel. Person. Agreed, yes. Yes, I it's 100%. Different, it's definitely different. It's different. It's different. And I think- Voices of the Elderly. I will just make that statement and leave it for now. Voices of the Elderly is- quite possibly the dumbest thing i've ever heard but that's uh, an album (laughs) but that's that's maybe the move though like to draw that comparison when paul simon went solo he understandably took it in a different direction didn't try to recreate the sound that he had with his duo this feels again an uncharitable look because i did enjoy listening to the record and i'll listen to it again that fagan is basically continuing the path of steely dan down the the smooth the smoothness ladder (laughs) Whatever Tom described about the laminar surface. Right. <laughs> now that I've sloughed off this uh, Becker that was just holding me back and trying to make me too hip and digestible, I'm just going to go straight into No it. viscosity. It's yeah. just, yeah. Right. <laughs> 1001 Album Complaints, proudly sponsored by Astroglide. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, was try- I honestly was trying to think of a metaphor for this album earlier, and it was like, somebody who like covered themselves in lube and then dove <laughs> on an oil slick on top of an ice skating rink. That was, that was my metaphor. For Whoever, yeah. Whoever edits this in post, can you just drop my Astroglide? <laughs> my Astroglide plug again. Phil's trying to get some free Astroglide out of this deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Dude, I'm an influencer now. <laughs> All this talk of goo is reminding me of David Bowie and the man who fell to earth. He's a, plays an alien, and when he makes love, he gets really slime comes off of him, and he his nipples oh, detach Jesus and Christ. stuff. Yeah, God. Oh, you remember the track? You remember the next gen where the 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 answer is already yes, but okay. yeah, of course, <laughs> yes. Well, you know the one where the woman like they, she admits that she's attracted to. Riker? Yeah, Riker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, admits she's attracted to Riker? Oh, they're an asexual. Asexual, yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. She she likes Riker. Very progressive attitude Mm -hmm. on that. I was really surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. 20 years ago. Powerful reframe. And by that that very progressive attitude, you mean that Riker is just down to bang anything (laughs) (laughs) at all? (laughs) I'm sure he's musky. Oh yeah, but I mean it's like Tiger Bomb. You just can't. You can't yeah, help. I'm it. sure he's just exuding pheromones. <laughs> uh, so Adam, I think you were trying to segue to the Nightfly. Like, oh yeah, let's, we're gonna, <laughs> let's quickly hit on the last two tracks that we we wanted to talk about. Uh, so the Nightfly is 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 the title track. We go back and we check out a nineteen late nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties jazz DJ doing his overnight thing. So let's take a quick listen to that right now. Station, station. 
All right, like that's good, right? This could also be a dance song. Right. Like just pretend that you're in a disco and put this on for a second. And the first 30 seconds, you're like, oh, I could be listening to Chic by Le Freak or something. <laughs> Most of this album comes in at around 120 beats per minute, by the way, which is like right in that sweet spot where it could be a dance album, question mark. So yeah, it's no perfect Billie Jean, for, though. Perfect for radio. Right. <laughs> Definitely pre Billie Jean. Yeah. That's the revolution. That's the wave that's coming. Mm -hmm. This one grew on me a lot. I, I like that it tells a story and to harken back briefly to Tom's earlier comment about the, the anime version of the cover researching this album and in particular, this song helped me really understand that there is a crazy steely Dan nerd community on the internet who debate these song lyrics are constantly referencing the Mount Belzoni line. Like there was was a depth that I was not expecting. (laughs) It's funny. It's funny you reference Mount Belzoni because I actually think after listening to this record that my new Steely Dan tribute band name would have to be Mount Belzoni, even though it's not actually a Dan reference. I think I'd go there. (laughs) I I looked up Mount Belzoni on the map and I found a place in Alabama that is on like the Western side of Alabama that would definitely have had broadcast range that would hit Baton Rouge. So I'm wondering if he's actually talking about a real dude. Uh, Counterpoint. I saw a deep internet article from a DJ in Baton Rouge who debunked what you just said, which he, in other words, he called out (laughs) Belzoni, Alabama, Mississippi, whichever one it was. And said, no, we don't get radio stations from here. I've tried. Like he was apparently he has a following of Steely Dan nerds. <laughs> and he was really diving deep into this question, like did detective work. <laughs> so, so no, but I did hear there's a lot of speculation online. I well, did hear that he's Belzoni, a southerner, so he's clearly stupid. So <laughs> <laughs> I did hear that Belzoni is the birthplace of a pretty famous piano player called Pinetop Perkins. Maybe it's a reference to that. Maybe. Wow. That's deep. Wow. Yeah. It, we have entered a new level of nerd and I very <laughs> much appreciate it. I'm, I'm on for the ride, man. Let's do it. He must be talking about his listening to New York stations as Adam right. regaled us with, right? Some, some version of that listening to jazz late at night in his New Jersey home and uh, extrapolate. Why would he choose Baton Rouge? Why? It's not even New Orleans. Like, that's cool, at least. You can mention New Orleans. Like, I feel like Tom Waits just mentions New Orleans in like a million songs because it's so evocative. Baton Rouge is not evocative of anything. <laughs> my, my first thought was for a rhyme, but then I was like, oh, there's no rhymes on this. There's no rhyme. No. <laughs> of course there's no rhymes. <laughs> rhymes are played out, Rob. <laughs> yeah. This is actually my my favorite track on the album, mainly because of the of the structure of the verse and how sparse it is and how long it takes to get to the end of the verse. Right. So it's this long chord progression with these stops and these hits. And then it's like, okay, well that, that was one half of the verse. Let's do it again. It's just, I haven't heard anything like it. So, so, so Adam, Adam, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. I think comp- just strictly from a, a compositional standpoint, I tried really hard to understand what was happening here. I, the, I couldn't find a proper lead sheet, so I didn't actually get to see what the vocal melody was singing. But yes, I count 66 so- chords in this song. Jeez. 
<laughs> now, 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 to be clear, some of these chords are like A minor, A minor nine. How'd that a, slip in there? Yeah, like, yeah, like A minor, A minor, A minor seven, A minor nine, A major, A major seven, A with a B in the bass, right? So, like, I'm counting everything. But if I count everything, I count 66 chords. <laughs> I'm just going to go on record. That's too many chords. <laughs> that's no too song, many chords. No song. I don't know what the right number is, but that's too many. An album can have sixty-seven chords, but not a song. <laughs> there are punk albums with like twelve chords on the entire album. This and album's only thirty-eight right. minutes long. Right. So wait, how long is this song? That's the real question. How many seconds is this song? So how many chords per second? Are got we got to <laughs> like I'll, I'll get back What's to you. The on CPS this. I'm on this. this. I'm on this. Right. <laughs> All right. So as Phil's looking that up, we're we're gonna we're gonna bring it in to the home stretch here with the goodbye look, and we're we're gonna let Tom shit all over it. But first, if I may say, my my one note that I wanted to throw in here: point eight seven. We're at point eight seven chords, chords per, per second. second. We've got a song that tracks. Well done. Well done. Yeah, sir. yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, some good. We, we got five minutes and forty seven seconds. Yeah, we got so point eight seven chords per second. Rick Derringer is on this album. And I had only known Rick Derringer from the McCoys, which I think was the early 60s, which was kind of like a bubblegum pop band. And then the Edgar Winter Group, where Radar he's just, Love. he played on Radar Love? Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, didn't know so <laughs> very, well, well, very rock-oriented tunes. Edgar Winter Group, again, very rock-oriented band. He does some really nice, clean jazz guitar. And I was, I was just floored when I went on. And I forget which song it is, but he, he crushes it on some tune. And I looked up thinking, who's that? It said Rick Derringer. And I was just, you know, blown away. So anyway, that was my one note. Go Rick Derringer. Tom, take it away. You loved the goodbye look? <laughs> I'm not being ironic here. This is my favorite song on the album. Goodbye look? I know. Yes, it is. I don't know why it's my favorite song of the album. It's so cheesy. It's so terrible. And I love it so much. I just, that little, I think I just got the goodbye look. I, the so synth good. marimbas are, are yeah, yeah, they're so bad. It's it's off. For me, it was off-putting. This is my, my least favorite song on the album. I have a hard time getting through it because I just know, like, he very easily could have gotten a steel drum or whatever player in there, the best in the world, but instead he went for like the synergy weird synth thing. I don't know why I like it. I just felt it was a little tacked on. I, I think the song itself is fine. Uh, yeah, I agree. The synth marimbas are not great, but it's catchy, but it just felt like it didn't go with the rest of the, the album to me. Yeah. I can't explain it. I really can't. I, this is the one song that I find myself humming after listening to this album and maybe it's the more simplistic song on the album and that's why i'm able to hum it because it's not some crazy melody that i can barely keep in my mind but i just find it to be kind of catchy and if i'm if i'm putting this album on that's the one song that i'm like yeah i'm gonna skip ahead and i'm gonna listen to the goodbye look i don't know why maybe it's this sort of like we talked a little bit about like the eternal well, I talked about it and you guys refuted my point. So, you know, you guys can go straight to hell. But uh, the eternal optimism of the lyrics on this album, I just find it hilarious that he's basically talking about like I'm in some on some island in either the Caribbean or South America that's basically going through a coup. Let's call and, it Cuba, right? <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah. There's a there's a coup going on. 
the rebels are taking over. But seriously, Becky, can I have another? Can I have another booze? Yeah, can you give me another? What is that for? Like a yeah, a Cuban breeze. Cuban breeze. Yeah, it's like Cuban breeze, Gretchen. Yes. Yeah, like it's it's great. I like it. It's I don't know why it's it's whimsical. And uh, I totally dig it. And I totally knew coming into this that I was going to be absolutely alone in saying that this is my best, my, my favorite track on the album. But it's my favorite track on the album. So I'm going to challenge myself to listen to it from that perspective in the coming days. I, I do have some notes here that I think the lyrics are like pretty like like positive and it does it does set a very pleasant scene hold on uh, hold on no you, as tom just described having a cocktail while the world crumbles around you how can that be read <laughs> as sincere how do you remember on 9-11 when uh the first thing that we did was say wait a second we have to go get beer because the liquor stores aren't going to be open for very long that was sadness drinking uh, yeah, this could also be this sadness also drinking be, set yeah. to happy music the other thing that I will point out, and Phil, if you go back and <laughs> listen to this, yeah. listen, we all know that story. If you go and listen to this song, listen to the guitar, and I got a total Trey Anastasio vibe. Oh, totally. Game hash. Yeah. Like early, yes. that early game. 100%. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I could hear that. That's, that's a good one. It's a good call. So anyway, listen, I found it to be a pleasant little ditty. Yeah, you'll kind of fight me about it, but it was my favorite song on the album. Uh, so just because it harkens back to something we talked about a moment ago, I just did a quick internet search. So this is, this, this could be refuted, but I'm, I'm counting, uh, yeah, just let me redo it again. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm counting uh, not 704, 52 chords in this song. So no, I mean, he's really phoning it in on this one. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, he's like, I mean, like, I think on one hand, wherever so you're at lazy. on this record or this song or whatever, like, it does show the insane, insane focus and attention to detail that Donald Fagan brings to songwriting, right? Like in the first verse, it's an F. In the second verse, it's an F6. At the end of the song, it's an F with a G in the bass. The second time around, it's a G chord and the whole thing is modulated. And it's, and you know, and he's just that sort of pervert, you know? So, <laughs> it's his thing. That was his follow up, that sort of pervert. <laughs> <laughs> right before Morph the Cat, right? That was his. <laughs> All right, uh, so that that rounds out up, Tommy. Well, one more no, thing. no, there, there's one more thing that we have to talk about. Bring it on, I bring it on. Could not get over, and it's on the last track. All right, you guys are familiar with the last track on the Nightfly, well, walking through the raindrops, right? Walk between the raindrops. Walk yes. between the raindrops. Yes, the lamest moment on the oh, entire album. Oh my god! Oh, it's terrible. How many? How? much do they agonize over every second of this album and, and that is what they landed on you open your umbrella you walk between the raindrops back to your door you walk between the raindrops back to your door oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> the worst gang vocal. <laughs> it was just atrocious. Again, no. just, again just I was so out of place, though. Yeah. So out of place, <laughs> and it's it's so terrible. It it like every time that I hear that, I'm just like, I I just have to stop this right now. I can't listen to any more of this. And respect <laughs> myself. It's I was hearkened back to. Phil and Adam will both appreciate this. We cut our first. No, I can't. Uh, I'm taking yeah, my headphones off with, right now. With Rich Dagnars in his basement, and we recorded that song, "Feeling Good," and he talked us into doing that gang vocal. We all went, "Feeling good," and I was sitting in my dorm room. My freshman oh, year of college, and I was talking to a dude who was just like, Oh, like I had my whole bass ring in the room, and he's like, Oh, you play bass, that's so awesome. Play me some of your stuff. And I put on that song, and it was like, He was like, Oh, yeah, oh, this is great. And then, like, 40 seconds in that part came up, and he's like, Oh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go. <laughs> that was a terrible choice, yeah, a terrible I, production choice, yeah, yeah. It's just you're like I can't respect the song after this. I have to be done with this song. I can't. The, al- the alternate version was you were in your dorm room with a girl, and oh, she was God. like, "Put on one of your songs," and you played this, and that part came up. She's like, "I I gotta go. I'm sorry. I can't, yeah. I can't be so." I I kind of wish that I at least had that story to tell, and not just some other stoner dude who was like, "Hey man, like you got you got a band. That's pretty cool." Yeah, no, that's close as I came. But yeah, that was the lamest part of the entire album by far. I cannot believe, number one, that it made it through the the myriad production choices that it had to make it. But they also had to record like seven guys singing right, that. Right. And you know they didn't track them all at once. You know, they were just like, yeah, I think we need another voice in there. Right. Yeah, we need another voice in there. Can you come in and go, whoa, Miami? <laughs> <laughs> well, that track didn't leave me feeling good. So... <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna bring it on home. So we have been reviewing the Nightfly by Donald Fagan, right? Eight songs across 38 glorious, super clean luby minutes. <laughs> However you want to describe it. So let's let's work our way around the room here. Let's see uh let's see what what, what you think. Phil, does this deserve to be on the 1001 albums you have to hear before you die? All right, guys. So, so I, I, this actually, I feel like is this touches on some things that I need to talk about as we move on in, in, into time, right? So, one is a complete outlier. It's, it's a complete non sequitur. For reasons I don't understand, I'm incredibly familiar with the cover art for the second Donald Fagan solo album. Kama Kirad, which I, I came across looking at this. I have no idea why I'm so familiar with this cover art. It, it makes me a little uncomfortable. So that, I'm just like sharing that. So I don't have to like, you know, share it with my therapist later. So two, <laughs> this record, I think, suffers from basically just like the 80s. And, and as, as we dig into this project, I think this is something you're going to hear from me more and more and more, right? Is that I think there's this sort of era in the 40s and the 50s where they were just capturing sound, right? 50s and the 60s started into like actually understanding how that works and actually making art out of it, right? Like art with the sound, art with the studio. Uh, the 70s is high times for this. This is where it all comes together. It's all beautiful. It's all magical. The 80s is where it moves into like the digital format. And there's a lot of bad choices made, 
right? Because people just want to be on the cutting edge. And I think I think this album falls prey to that very badly. Rob will debate this at a later date, but there are many Elvis Costello records that I feel fall prey to this. I think the songs are fantastic. I think the actual recordings are borderline unlistenable. Does this belong on 1001 records you must listen to? No. No, why? Because if you're gonna, if you're really coming in raw to this, you should listen to Royal Scam, Asia, Can't Buy a Thrill, Countdown to Ecstasy. Like, start there. Last point, I'm gonna go listen to Gaucho. Like, if if this is a progression, right? Gaucho is the point that I fell off. I can't, I can't get past Gaucho. So I'll go back to that. You know, maybe we'll see where that goes. But no, this is gonna be a no for me. This is gonna be a pass. Cool. I think I'm up now. And I agree with Phil in the sense that the 80s were a tough time for a lot of musicians. A lot of those uh, decisions, production decisions haven't aged that well. For me, it's a no also. Not because it's not good. I enjoy the record. I know I'm going to continue listening to it. I certainly don't think of it as unlistenable. I, I don't feel anger about it in the way that, you know, the guitar choices that Phil does. Is it the best post Steely Dan record? Almost certainly, Yes. But ultimately, it feels like the end of something, not the beginning of something. And I give extra points. We, we've talked a little bit about, or we've alluded to some of our criteria for what makes this list or what doesn't. It's about more than being enjoyable to me, because this was enjoyable. It is also has to feel like it's new or essential in the listening canon. And of course, I agree entirely with Phil if that if you're interested in this kind of music or the output of Donald Fagan or layered extended chords, Go to those other four Steely Dan records, or really any Steely Dan record beats this, even Katie Lied. Yeah, Rob, I uh, I agree. It's a no for me. It feels like, I, I enjoy the album, but I'm a big Steely Dan fan. This feels like, if this is the Steely Dan horse, this is Donald Fagan like flogging it to get that last quarter mile. And it's, it's not it's not unnecessary, but it's certainly not groundbreaking. And it's certainly not giving me something that hasn't been done better before. It feels indulgent in a way that other Steely Dan albums don't feel indulgent. And maybe that was there was the editing process of, I don't know, time crunch with the price you got to pay for a studio or the just the Becker influence of like, let's pull it in a little bit. But it, it feels like it took everything that I liked about Steely Dan and turned it up to 11 and that didn't make it better. And so I agree, go back and listen to the Steely Dan catalog. Basically the early Steely Dan catalog, the first four albums are significantly better than this. And uh, it was enjoyable. I wouldn't say don't listen to this album as a listener. Like I would certainly recommend go listen to the album, especially if you like Steely Dan, but Something tells me if you like Steely Dan, you probably already listened to this album because there's not a lot of casual Steely Dan listeners. So one would imagine that they're already pretty deep into it. So it's a, it's a no for me. All right. I'm going to be the odd man out here. So I like this album for a couple of reasons. Probably, honestly, 90% of this is nostalgia because I grew up listening to this. My old man taught me how to sing harmonies using the song Ruby Baby. We'd be in the car driving and I'd have my finger in my ear and he'd be teaching me like the parts to sing and not get distracted. So completely skewed uh, viewpoint. But I, I do like that this was Donald Fagan unbridled, that he could essentially, you know, we, we talked about Becker kind of being his break or maybe that opposing force. I like that this was truly Donald Fagan 
unleashed. And it also led to a nervous breakdown and 10 years of antidepressants that he needed and stuff. So it tells you it was a good album, right? When it, when it leads to that. So, uh, so I'm a yes, but there's your answer. So we've got three against one. This is a no. So a no to Donald Fagan's The Nightfly. And there you have it. The group has spoken. You don't need to listen to this unless you're cool. <laughs> and But now we're going to turn things over to Tom. We're like two for five on albums that actually make the list so far. We're, right. Yeah. We're only a 40% success rate on albums that actually make the list. That, that, you so know, we're whittling it down. Them. This is good. Yeah, this we are. Good. Opening up a lot of space. Making your life easier. Why, why listen to a 30-minute album when you can listen to an hour and a half of us talk about it? <laughs> it's more entertaining all right so we've got the albinator 5000 we've got it all primed up and ready to go let's see let's let's consult the great oracle and find out what we're gonna dissect next week drum roll please we have oh the smiths the queen is dead right I have a feeling it's going to be controversial. I hate this album. (laughs) (laughs) I've only listened to like two tracks in this album. I already know I hate this album. (laughs) I've never listened to a Smiths album in my life. So this will be something new for me. I'm excited. I really, I really want to come back next week and be like, guys, I was completely wrong. I love this album now. I really want that to be. Well, me too. Tom, I'll say I'm a fan of this record. I'm familiar with it. And Tom's policy of if the singer is an asshole, uh, I can't like it. That's going to be a hard one to get past here because he's pretty undefendable. Yeah, he's pretty undefendable. <laughs> There's that famous story about how he played in San Francisco and he um, stopped the show like 10 minutes in because he could like smell the meat being cooked in the kitchen of the venue that he was playing at. And he's like, guys, this is just so disgusting. I no cannot way. deal with this anymore. And I can't continue the show because killing animals is so terrible. And it's like, dude, you can seriously, you can get bent. He is ridiculous in personally. You're going to get no argument there. And I'm, I'm excited to relate to you as many anecdotes of his unbearableness as possible. So we can make fun of Marcy. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. However, I encourage you to take the record at face value and give it a chance. So I want to add two thoughts to that. Uh, one, Morrissey was recently roasted on The Simpsons, which obviously we all loved, you know, early first decade Simpsons when we were kids. And he actually responded to it publicly. I, I really shit you not. I swear. I hope you can debunk me. I hope you can find that what I'm about to say is untrue. But he basically said, like, there are a bunch of anti-hate laws, but none of them protect me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And this seems consistent with what I know. I'm sure it is true. He is ridiculous. We got to put the insufferable Brit act of like 2021. If you look up insufferable in the dictionary, you will probably see a picture of Morrissey. (laughs) I'm not, I'm just, I'm just being clear. I'm not disputing that. So as we listen to this in in upcoming week, I'd like to just like put a pin in this for next week. Maybe we think about it. I'm not trying to tackle hard hitting issues here, but this might be a soft way to explore separating the artist from the art. 
which is a hot topic in pop culture. Ooh, yes. I agree. So what if they both suck fat ones? <laughs> That's my question. If they both suck fat ones, am I supposed to separate the different kinds of suckage? Is that you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, if you could do that for us. Yes. I mean, it might help us as we compare notes. So, yes, I think so. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I like it. So we hope to see you guys next week on another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. From all of us here in the studio, I'm Adam. I'm Phil. I'm Rob. And I'm Tom. And Boosh. One Thousand and One Album Complaints was produced by four dudes sitting in their basement during a global pandemic. Our theme music was written and performed by the Beverly Crushers. Our outro music was written and performed by the band Mega. Did we get something wrong? Do you love us? Do you hate us? Well, let us know by emailing us at One Thousand One Album Complaints at gmail.com.